Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Another episode of the Illegal Motion College Football Podcast. Here in Nashville, Tennessee, I'm Matt Perkins. And a quick hitch across the Harpeth River from me and the new host of the Believe in Georgia Dogs podcast on the Believe Podcast Network, it's our own offensive coordinator, the coach, Corey Burton. Man, you got it, man. My teaser episode should be coming out any day now. Um, I've recorded one episode, got a few others in the uh, on the schedule, so things are looking up. We cannot get started without our third amigo in the second city, a man who understands the historical significance, yet also the limitations of the Magna Carta. It's our intrepid <laughs> blogger from Big Ten and Counting, Josh Cook. So how do I get one of those uh, Believe podcasts for Iowa? What's going uh, on with that? You, you shoot me an email and uh, I, I do the rest. Oh, that sounds really complicated. So I just I don't know if I can pencil that into my schedule. It's so busy right now. Well, well, you're a busy man, Josh. <laughs> but despite all of the things that are on your schedule, you've still had time for uh, another short punt for us here today. So why don't we go ahead and jump right into it? Because it is yeah. uh, related to what is happening in our country right now. Yeah, so we're going to rewind the clock. We're going to go back to Coach's favorite time period, the 1850s. Uh, back in June 7th of 1854, Joseph Parkinson laid out a brand spanking new town, you guys, of North Bloomington, Illinois. But uh, another citizen, Jesse W. Fell, he was the real mover and shaker of this community as he arranged a railroad link to other places in the Midwest, especially the most important one to Chicago. So this little hamlet grew and grew, and by 1865, it was renamed Normal, Illinois. And in 1867, it was incorporated. By 1900, it had about 3,800 residents. Can I have a quick interjection here, Josh? Yes. Um... Why do people name a town normal? Was that to attract people to make it think that it is normal? And how does one even define normal in this situation? Uh, I don't really know. I know back in the day there were normal schools. Yeah, um, and, and that which, was for uh, training teachers. So it, it, there might have been a, a, a normal school nearby. I don't really know. It didn't come up in my research. I mean, let's be honest, North Bloomington isn't exactly winning any name prizes either. It's it's better than normal. Fair enough. Uh, today, Normal, Illinois has over 54,000 residents, so it's a nice little moderately sized city. And believe it or not, is, it's a is, normal sized city. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, believe it or not, it is actually the birthplace of my dear mother. But we are not talking about my family history today. Instead, we are going to talk about the greatest athlete ever born in normal Illinois. It's not Sue Fred Richards. It's not. It's, it's Frederick Wayman Slater, better known as 
Duke Slater. Easy and if you haven't, <laughs> I wish if you haven't heard of Duke, it's probably because he was before your time. And honestly, he's really before anyone's time as he was born December 9th, 1898. Duke's dad was George Slater, a Methodist minister, and his mother was Letha Slater. Duke was one of six children in the Slater home. There is also at least one pet dog because Duke's nickname came from the animal. Unfortunately for Duke, his childhood was not easy. His mom passed away when he was just 11, and being a black minister in the 1900s isn't the most profitable job, so the family was rather poor. On top of that, his dad bounced around between towns as he was assigned to various churches. So the family isn't going to stay in normal. By age 13, the Slater family had moved to Clinton, Iowa, where his dad became reverend of the local African Methodist Episcopal Church. Nearing high school, Duke was already in love with the game of football. He had learned the sport playing fellow neighborhood boys in vacant lots or, amazingly, on the streets, which hopefully that was two-hand touch football and not tackle. But Duke was eager to play for Clinton High School, except his dad refused. George thought the sport was way too dangerous and forbade his son from playing a game he felt was full of quote-unquote roughnecks. Duke protested and went on a several-day hunger strike. Finally, George let him play, so long as he promised to avoid injury. This rule was so strict that throughout his career, Duke never complained or showed signs of any football injury. There was another roadblock for Duke's career, though, and that is equipment. At the time, Iowa high school players had to purchase their own equipment, George didn't have enough money to buy both shoes and a helmet, so he let Duke pick what he needed more. Duke decided that shoes were more important than a lid, so he went helmetless every game of his high school career. Duke was massive for the era, and one of the listings I found for him put him at 6'1", so those shoes George got for him actually had to be special ordered from Chicago. Meanwhile, Clinton dominated the three years Duke played. They won state titles in 1913 and 1914, and they went 22-3-1 over Duke's time. Duke was an amazing tackle, but even led the team in scoring in 1915 with six rushing touchdowns when he lined up at fullback. Duke graduated high school and stayed in-state for college ball, going off to Iowa and arriving on campus in 1918. World War I had impacted the eligibility rules, so he was actually allowed to play as a freshman instead of having to wait. Iowa was a major power with Duke in uniform. The Hawkeyes went 23-6-1 in his four years and won a national title in 1921. For the record, they also won a title in 1922, but now I am just bragging. Anyway, while Duke was still dominating the high school ranks, Iowa hired former Yale coach Howard Jones to restore the luster of the program, a program that hadn't won a Big Ten or Western Conference championship since 1900. And the 1907 co-Missouri Valley title, while still a member of the Big Ten, doesn't really count in my book. 
So the first two years under Jones were unspectacular, going a combined seven and eight and one and four in league. Duke's freshman year in 1918 turned the tide. The club went six, two and one overall and two and one in league. Good for fourth overall. Their schedule reads very much like an early era football schedule during a time of war. The slate has a mix of major programs, tiny local schools, and military bases. In the season opener, the Great Lakes Navy shut out Iowa 10-0. That Great Lakes Navy team was actually pretty good. They went 7-0-2, won the Rose Bowl. I was going to say, there was at least one Great Lakes Navy team that went to the Rose Bowl, but I I don't know if there were multiple ones. I think during the Second World War II, there might have been one. Wouldn't surprise me. Um, But this 1918 team, they won the Rose Bowl, and it featured several Hall of Famers, including future NFL legend George Hallis. Papa Bear. Yeah. Next up, Nebraska, who went down 12-0. Then two local Iowa colleges, Coe and Cornell, each was lopsided with a total margin of victory 61-0. Big Ten co-champs stoned Iowa 19-0. But the Hawks bounced back with a homecoming victory over Minnesota, 6-0, dominated Iowa State, 21-0, and finished league play over Northwestern, 23-7. In the finale, Iowa tied a bunch of soldiers posted at Camp Dodge, Iowa, 0-0. So while not a major contributor to that 1918 club, the young Duke did see the field plenty of times and was named to an all-state team by the Des Moines Register. 1919, though, would be Duke's breakout season. The 1919 Hawks would go 5-2 overall, 2-2 in league, but it was a few plays away from a magical year. Iowa opened with a strong performance against Nebraska, winning 18-0. But the following week, their nemesis and eventual national champion, Illinois, nipped them 9-7. Ironically, Illinois' only loss that year was to one of the official illegal motion teams, Wisconsin. But it still didn't stop. Two games they won that year. Uh, No, they were pretty good. They finished third of the league. But um, it still wasn't enough to stop the Illini from taking home the end-of-year awards. Iowa then won three straight, a tight one at Minnesota, 9-6, a 26-13 triumph over South Dakota, and a 14-7 win over Northwestern. In the penultimate game, Alonzo Stagg's Chicago Maroons slipped past Iowa 9-6. Good old Amos. Yeah. In the finale, Iowa shut out Iowa State 10-0, so they were just five points away from an undefeated season. Duke played a massive role in the season's success. He was a unanimous first-team All-Big Ten selection and was a second-team All-American, becoming just the sixth black player ever named to an All-American list. The 1920 season would be eerily similar to the 1919 campaign as Iowa went 5-2 overall and 3-2 in league. They beat Indiana 14-7 as well as Northwestern and Minnesota again. Out of conference, they smoked Iowa's Cornell 63-0 and beat Iowa State 14-10, but the disappointment came again from that state to the east. Illinois and Chicago both beat Iowa 10-0. Even worse, Illinois would finish only fourth 
in the league, and Chicago would not win another game after the Iowa victory, going just three and four overall. Perhaps those early losses dropping Iowa to just two and two took Duke off the national radar, or maybe it was the overall lack of building on the previous year as a team, but Duke failed to be an All-American in 1920. He was, however, named to the All-Big Ten team by unanimous vote yet again. 1920 was Duke's last year of eligibility back in the day when you only had three years. But just as fate was kind to him in 1918, fate was smiling down in 1921. The league ruled that anyone who had been allowed to play as a freshman in 1918 would get to play as a senior in 1921. This allowed Duke to be the super rare four-year letter winner in this era. The 1921 team was outstanding. They would go 7-0 overall and 5-0 in league. The team would open with a beatdown of Little Knox College in Illinois, then took down powerhouse Notre Dame 10-7. Finally, overcoming their demons, Illinois was roughed up 14-2. Purdue was the last team to really give Iowa a challenge, and the Hawks knocked them off 13-6. Good question. I I might be a couple years off. Was Red Grange on those Illinois teams? Uh, he was not. Yeah, because he was like what a little like twenty four to twenty eight or something like that. Or was yeah, he, he was early? just a pinch later. Okay. Yep. <clears throat> Next up was Minnesota and Indiana, and Iowa rolled, winning those games forty one seven and forty one nothing. A road trip to Evanston ended the season, and the Hawks shut out the Wildcats fourteen nothing. Duke was a first team All American, becoming just the third black player ever honored that way in two different seasons. He was also first team all Big Ten for the third straight season. Other Hawkeyes honored that year were end Lester Belding, quarterback Audrey Devine, and fullback Fred Lohman. At least one publication, the then popular but now defunct Leslie's Weekly, named Slater Player of the Year nationally. And just a reminder, the Heisman Trophy was first awarded in 1935, So All-American lists and individual publications are the big awards of Duke's time. In the muddled chaos of 1920s football, Iowa was named national champs by Billingsley and co-champs by Park Hill Davis. Both organizations retroactively named national champions. In the NCAA official record books, Iowa is listed among three other schools. What really helps Iowa's case is the Notre Dame win. The Irish went 10-1 that year and was one of the first, if not the outright first, team to center their offensive attack on passing. They were coached by the legendary Newt Rockney, and the win is one of Iowa's most storied victories. The victory is also one of Duke's best games and includes his most legendary moment in an Iowa uniform. In an iconic image, which was captured for the newspapers and has since been reproduced as a relief on Kinnick Stadium's north end zone facade, shows a helmetless Duke taking down not one, not two, but three Irish defenders. When reflecting on the game, Rockney said, quote, This fellow Slater just about beat my team single-handedly in the only contest we lost. Realizing the great strength of Slater and the fact that he knew how to use that strength to 
intelligent advantage, I had four of my players massed around Slater throughout the game. Occasionally, my boys would stop the big tackle, but those times were the exception. Usually, he made such a hole in my strong line that fullback lock would go through for long gains, often standing straight up as he advanced with the ball. Some other accolades came from sports writer Walter Eckersall and Michigan legend Fritz Chrysler. Eckersall said, quote, Slater is so powerful that one man cannot handle him, and opposing 11s have found it necessary to send two men against him every time a play was sent off his side of the line, unquote. Chrysler commented, quote, Duke Slater was the best tackle I ever played against. I tried to block him throughout my college career, but never once did I impede his progress to the ball carrier, unquote. The Notre Dame game was so hard-hitting that even Duke decided to wear a helmet for parts of the 1921 season, though he did go helmetless in that Northwestern finale. Duke would end his legendary career at Iowa as easily the best player before Niall Kinnock, and along with another titan of college football, Cal Jones, the best offensive lineman in Iowa history, which is saying a whole hell of a lot. Duke's footprint at Iowa extended beyond the gridiron, as he also earned three letters for track and field, helping Iowa finish third in the 1921 NCAA National Track and Field Championship by having top five finishes in two throwing events, discus and hammer. Oh, he's a good spinner. Yeah. Balance, which probably made him such a good tackle. Probably. Duke graduated Iowa at just the right time as the American Professional Football Association had their inaugural season in 1920. The league would stick around for a bit, as in 1922, it was renamed the more familiar National Football League. Duke joined the league in 1922, signing with the Rock Island Independents, becoming the league's first ever black lineman. He debuted October 1st against the Green Bay Packers, and the Independents won the game, 1914. Duke helped win the game by swatting down a curly Lambeau pass on the Packers' final drive of the game. Oh, did I not mention that he's played both sides of the line this entire time? Oops. In a hilarious twist that really only happened in the wild days of the early NFL, after the Rock Island team finished their schedule, he went and played two games with Milwaukee. His rookie season in the books, Duke would play with Rock Island for four more seasons. I mean, basically, they're just like mercenaries. Pretty much. Yeah. The 1924 season was the most notable with Rock Island as they would add, I don't know, this some weird dude named Jim Thorpe. I couldn't find much about him. He was okay. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. yeah. He was okay. Uh, the end- he, was, he was not bad. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the Independents were 3-0-1 and atop the standings when the team went to Kansas City to play the winless Blues. The Blues upset them 23-7, but there's a little asterisk next to this game. Thanks to a gentleman's agreement, owners agreed not to play their black players in the state of Missouri, so Duke didn't play. 
The rematch a few weeks later in Illinois would be a dominating 17-0 victory for the Independents. It was the only start Slater would miss in his 10-year pro career. The loss was also damaging as the Independents would end up with two losses, one more than the champion Cleveland Bulldogs. In 1926, Rock Island left. That was the last left. title that a football team has won in Cleveland. <laughs> I think Jim Brown might have a few things to say about that. In 1926, Rock Island left the NFL to join the new American Football League, and Duke joined them for that season. At the end of the AFL schedule, Duke would be back in the NFL, playing a few games in 1926 for the Chicago Cardinals. The independents and the AFL as a whole folded after the 1926 season, but Duke would keep going with the cards. All told, while in a Rock Island uniform, Duke was a three-time All-NFL selection, and in 1926, the Chicago Tribune put him on their All-Pro list, which took players from both leagues. He also played all 60 minutes of every game he played. What? Yep. Wow. So, I mean, his dad told him he couldn't get hurt, and I think he just took that to, like, the most extreme possible. I think so. Yeah. That's amazing. That is amazing. But Duke, he's just getting started in Chicago. By signing with the Cards in 1926, Duke was the first ever black player to play for a current NFL franchise. Outside of two games in which Duke's friend Harold Bradley Sr. played, Duke was the only black NFL player from 1927 to 1929. Duke continued to be an all-pro selection, ultimately making five straight teams until 1928, when the Cards oddly only played six games, so he didn't qualify. After that season, the Cards were sold and the roster was purged. Just four players from the 1928 squad would return for 1929, and obviously Duke was one of them. And of course, like I mentioned, he's now the only black player in the league. 1929 provided Duke with his professional version of the incredible Notre Dame game. On November 28th, Cardinal fullback Ernie Nevers set an NFL record that still stands, by the way, of scoring all 40 points in the Cards 40-6 win over their crosstown rival Bears. It is the oldest untied record in the NFL record book, and Duke played all 60 minutes of that game. He was the only Cardinal lineman to accomplish that. After the game, one Chicago newspaper reported, quote, Duke Slater, the veteran colored tackle seemed to seemed the dominant figure in that forward wall, which had the bare front wobbly. It was Slater who opened the holes for Nevers when a touchdown was in the making, unquote. Bears icon George Hallis, who has his own complex legacy with race, including being a major player in the unofficial color ban in the NFL, reflected on the game, saying, quote, I can't say too much about Duke Slater as a football player and as a gentleman. In the old Cardinal Bears games, I learned it was absolutely useless to run against Slater's side of the Cardinal line, unquote. Hallis would continue, quote, They talked about Fordham's famous seven blocks of granite in the mid-1930s, and what a line that was. Well, 
Slater was a one-man line a decade before that. Seven blocks of granite, he was the Rock of Gibraltar, unquote. Duke continued to rack up the all-pro elections. He was selected in both 1927 and 29 as the only black player in the entire NFL. He was named for a seventh time in 1930 and was the first NFL lineman to make all-pro teams in seven seasons. Slater would retire after the 1931 season. And at the time, his 10 NFL seasons ranked third in league history. His 10 seasons, 99 games, 96 starts, and seven all-pro selections were more than any other African player from 1920 until 1945. Second in all of these categories was Fritz Pollard, who was enshrined in the Hall of Fame back in 2005. Two years after Duke retired, the NFL enacted what I mentioned a few moments ago, an unofficial color ban, and no black player appeared in a single game from 1934 until 1945. As a response, Slater assembled and coached in several all-star contests made up of African-American players. But since Duke is, well, Duke freaking Slater, the story doesn't end there. While playing in the NFL, he returned to Iowa during the off-seasons to go to law school. He earned his law degree in 1928 and practiced in Chicago while still playing with the Cardinals. After doing his coaching thing, he returned to Chicago full-time in 1933 as an attorney. He must have been pretty good at it because in 1948, he was elected to the Cook County Municipal Court thanks to nearly a million votes in his name. This made Slater just the second judge of African descent in Chicago history after the first was elected in 1942. Slater served two six-year terms in that role. In 1960, he was elevated to the Cook County Superior Court, the highest court in Chicago at the time. He was the first black judge on that panel. When the Circuit Court of Cook County was created in 1964, he moved to that organization. He never lost his ties to Iowa either. He was a major booster and recruiter. He helped recruit dozens of prominent African-American athletes, including Ozzie Simmons, who I might do a short punt on later as his life is pretty fascinating, Emmeline Tunnell, who was the first black player for the New York Giants and the first ever black NFL Hall of Famer, Hall of Fame football coach from Morgan State, Earl Banks, NFL player, music recorder, and film actor, Harold Bradley Jr., basketball standout, Nolden Gentry, and Carl Kane, who was an Olympic gold medal basketball player and a part of two Final Four teams. These names are just a snapshot of the many other Hawkeyes who Duke helped recruit. Although Duke never had children, doesn't mean he didn't have a loving home life. He married Etta Searcy in 1926 and remained married until she passed away in 1962. Duke died in 1966 at the age of 67 due to stomach cancer. He's buried on the south side of Chicago. Like most players who have had the career Duke had, there is a grocery list of honors he received after play. In 1980, Duke was elected to the Iowa High School Football Hall of Fame. In 1951, when the Iowa Sports Hall of Fame opened, Slater was one of just five football players in that first ever class, joining Niall Kinnick, teammate Audrey Devine, and two guys who played out of state, traitors. 
1948, Slater was one of just 11 players selected to an all-time college football All-American team that was assembled by a nationwide poll of 600 sports writers and coaches. Furthermore, the Football Writers Association of America chose Duke in 1969 as one of just 44 players on an all-century team that covered the first 100 years of college football. Also opened in 1951 was the College Football Hall of Fame. He was the only African-American player in that inaugural class. Here, too, he was joined by Niall Kinnock. In 1972, when University President Willard Boyd proposed renaming Iowa Stadium, he suggested Kinnick Slater Stadium. The university went with just Kinnick, but did rename the closest dorm to the stadium, Slater Hall. Long, long after he played, Iowa fans voted for an all-time U of I football team for the 100th year of Iowa football in 1989. Slater was selected as a tackle. In 2013, when Iowa introduced Kinnick Stadium's Wall of Honor, Slater was one of nine Hawkeyes recognized in that way. If you're wondering what the numbers are, number one was Audrey Devine and Gordon Locke. Number 15 was Duke Slater. Number 16, Chuck Long. Number 24, Niall Kinnick. Number 25, Randy Duncan. Number 36, Larry Station. Number 62, Cal Jones. And number 77, Alex Carras. Is it Carras or is it Karras? I always thought it was Karras. It's, uh, that's, I think it's both. I think it's more Karras. Mm. I think that's just my uh, Midwestern accent. Some other odds and ends. There's a apartment complex in Chicago named the Judge Slater Apartments. The Professional Football Researchers Association elected Duke to their Hall of Very Good in 2004, but the PFRA, as well as some others, endorsed Duke to make it to the Pro Football Hall of Fame, which helped re-spark Hall Talk for Duke. See, before the Pro Football Hall of Fame opened in 1963, Duke was mentioned by UPI, the old rival to the Associated Press, as one of nine candidates who had been nominated for election to the new hall. Then the AP listed him as one of six strong candidates for election in 1964. He never got it. He was a finalist in 1970 and 71. Didn't get in. In 1972, a seniors committee was formed for exclusive nominations for players who retired over 25 years ago. From 1972 until 2019, they declined to nominate him. Finally, on January 15th of this year, 2020, Duke was elected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame as a member of the Centennial class. In 2019, the university also unveiled the sculpture relief I mentioned earlier of Duke's famous block against the Irish. The plaque next to him reads, quote, Slater drives the opposition back in calm determination. His life in football and beyond was defined by triumph and relentless breaking of boundaries, unquote. Now, I wanted to tell this story for five reasons. The first one is super obvious. I'm an Iowa fan. The second is when I looked at that statue last football season, it renewed interest in Duke Slater for me. 
The third is, as I was researching him, I had no idea he was such a pioneer on the field as a professional, but also in his legal career. The fourth is what the country is going through today. And the fifth is that plaque provides a lesson that I think really teaches all of us. So I want to use this last little bit of this story to talk about reasons four and five. So if you aren't here for politics, maybe you should stop playing. But really, you are the person who should keep listening. I also wanted to give the disclaimer that we are three white people talking about this. Ideally, we would have someone on to better discuss these ideas. But I think if there is a benefit of the three of us doing this, maybe fellow white men will better understand things that are going on, perhaps by hearing us be allies, they will also step up and be better allies. So about reasons four and five, starting with that fourth reason. This story compared to what is happening in America in 2020. Simply put, sports has always been political. What Jackie Robinson did fundamentally shifted this nation. But Jackie wasn't the only one who challenged the status quo. Willie O'Ree broke the color barrier in the NHL. And while football was always more integrated than the other sports, figures like Duke, Amelin Tunnel, and others were still making political statements. By playing and saying, yes, I am black, and yes, I can play in a white man's league, were powerful political statements. The most famous of all, Muhammad Ali, he lost years of his career because he refused to serve in Vietnam. And he has this perfect quote that explains why he didn't want to serve. Quote, shoot them, the Vietnamese, for what? They never called me N-word. They never lynched me. They didn't put no dogs on me. They didn't rob me of my nationality, rape and kill my mother and father. Shoot them for what? How can I shoot them poor people? Just take me to jail, unquote. And no, when Ali originally said that, he did not sanitize himself and say the N-word like I did. So today, what Colin Kaepernick was protesting several years ago and what the Missouri players, what the Clemson players, what the Iowa players, and what Chuba Howard down at Oklahoma State has done, as well as countless other student-athletes, current and former, are doing this exact moment, is an important part of this dialogue. I'm not even talking nationally, but think about it locally. If Clemson can have a real, honest dialogue about what it means for their university to be built on a plantation and how they need to sever ties to John C. Calhoun, that is great. That local conversation will create more enlightened people for national change. And change is what we need. From the 1600s until 1865, this nation had slavery. The South benefited from free labor, and the North benefited from reduced prices for raw materials for their factories. For about the next hundred years, we had Jim Crow, de jure segregation in the South, and de facto segregation in the North. 
Since then, though, things have not been all good in our country. Our criminal justice system is fundamentally skewed as black, indigenous, and people of color, the BIPOC community, they are jailed at a higher rate, killed in police encounters at a higher rate, and marginalized economically at a higher rate. If you disagree with that, you either have the largest blind spot in American history or are willfully ignorant of what is going on in our country. Take the popular refrain, black on black crime. Well, in the most recent breakdown of data I could find from the FBI's crime report, which was 2017, 3,567 white people were murdered. 2,861 of those murders were committed by white people. That's 80.2%. In the same year, 2,970 blacks were murdered by 2,627 black offenders. That's about 88%. So whites murdering whites are essentially the same number per capita and in hard numbers occurs more often. So I ask you, where's the discussion of white on white crime? What about the rate of jail sentences towards black people? Their per capita incarceration rates are way higher than whites. Doesn't that indicate a racial problem? If you answer no, you're probably one of those people that have this mindset that, well, black people are in gangs, this quote unquote thug life. They don't choose to stay in school. So it's their own personal choices leading to incarceration. But wouldn't participation in the drug trade and other criminal enterprises indicate a lack of access to mainstream economic activities? The fact that educational opportunities in this nation are tilted towards wealth and the correct zip code, two things minority communities lack, also indicate a lack of access to mainstream economic advances. College degree recipients earn more over a lifetime. But what is the access for BIPOC people like? Those are what we need to think about. And if you really want to dig deep, think about the opportunities not just among BIPOC people, but what about white people in some of the poorest areas like Appalachia? The system is designed to marginalize poor people, and it is further designed to make BIPOC people poor. It is a double whammy for our minority communities. But I just told this great story of Duke and other stories like this happened during this time. So it couldn't be all bad, right? Well, no. Duke is the exception to the rule. Duke played in a state that was fully integrated before the Civil War. Duke played at a university that had black players for 20 years before he got there. Think about all the non-Dukes, the kids who couldn't afford pads or shoes or helmets in order to play. The Dukes who grew up in segregated areas, both North and South. Hell, while Duke was at the University of Iowa in 1919, there was a massive race riot in Chicago that started because a black kid accidentally swam on the white side of a Lake Michigan beach. White people attacked black communities and 23 African-Americans were murdered and 38 people in total died. Thousands of black people were left homeless. Imagine what Duke felt playing at Chicago in November, just four months after that riot. He didn't say anything that day, 
because as stated in the book, Hawkeye Greats, he faced racial prejudice with dignity. He didn't have the ability to talk, but he let his play do his speaking. Duke played that day against the Maroons was his political statement. He was saying, I am here. I am black. I am playing your game. Deal with it. Stories like Duke and Jackie Robinson are seemingly great because they show someone succeeding in this terrible racial climate. But in reality, they are demonstrating that you need to be exceptional to have even a slight chance of experience what white people did. Duke and Jackie had to stay totally silent on race. Duke had to be the greatest lineman of his generation to make it to the NFL. And even then, he was the only black player. Jackie had to be an absurd talent. And even then, he was 28 years old when he finally made it to the majors. He hit 311 and averaged 15 home runs a year in his nine-year career before injuries derailed him. Imagine his numbers if he had broken into the league in 1940 when he was 21. What makes Jackie perfect for breaking the color barrier was his stoicism and the relentless racism he faced and the deliberately rough play by his opponents. His talent only took him so far. His self-control is what Branch Rickey felt would allow him to play. Like I said, these figures are doing the exceptional just to have a chance. That is why their stories should be celebrated. Not because, see, Duke got a chance to play in the 1920s, but rather the stories should be framed with this mindset. Why is Duke the only one playing professional football in the 1920s? The fifth reason was that plaque, especially the phrase, quote, slider drives the opposition back in calm determination, unquote. The recent protests are an incredible spike in awareness of police brutality and criminal justice reform. But calm determination is what will win the day. Are we still pushing for these changes in November when we the people have the ability to vote? Will we push in two years when it's in the middle of either Biden or Trump's second term and there are more elections for Congress? Will we push when there are local mayoral and city council elections? Need I remind you that your mayor has much more control over local police matters than the president. In short, will we push when we need to push? What happened to Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey, and of course George Floyd has created a great spark right now. But the forces that do not acknowledge fundamental issues in America are hoping they can hold out until that spark fades away. So we need to be like Duke Slater and drive the opposition back in calm determination. Keep pushing and that spark won't go out. Keep pushing and we will drive this change down the field. If you want to help, in addition to joining the peaceful demonstrations all across America, there are a couple things you can do. You can donate to the NAACP at NAACP.org donate, and that money is used for a variety of things, including legal defense funds. You could donate to the Minnesota Defense Fund at minnesotafreedomfund.org donate. 
Of course, the easiest one is probably registering to vote. Not all states have same-day voter registration, so check your local election laws. Tennessee, for instance, where you fine gentlemen are, has Monday, October 5th as the deadline for voter registration and no election day registration. So if you miss if you miss October 5th, you're screwed. You don't get to vote. Uh, rockthevote.org will have all the information you need for your particular state. Sources for this show were the book Hawkeye Greats by The Numbers, which was written by L. Hamas and a few other writers, but he was the first one. So we get that old et al. situation right there, Matt, as I'm sure you remember. Which is actually short for uh, Alia. I don't know why they just yeah. got rid of two letters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also used HawkeyeSports.com, which is the official homepage of University of Iowa Athletics. Uh, the Duke Slater Wikipedia page was awesome, as well as sources within that that I pulled some of those quotes from. And uh, for the crime statistics, I used the Uniform Crime Report 2017, which was accessed via ucr.fbi.gov. Ladies and gentlemen, he did his homework. Um, Josh, that was a beautifully told story. Thank you. Um, and I think that, wow. frankly, you know, I thought about talking about Chuba and Florida State and Mike Norvell. Um, but I think we should just end it there because I, I think, Josh, that you have left us on a, uh, on a high note there with optimism um, in terms of the words from the inscription on the statue. Uh, calm determination. So um, I, I, I think that is going to do it here for us today. Josh, uh, thank you so much for uh, sharing that with us. My pleasure. All right, and uh, we will catch you next time on the Illegal Motion College Football Podcast. That was a short punt. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.